I mean, I was, you don't understand, guys. I mean, I was, I was a kid when all that happened. I was 13 years old when, when they gunned him down. The producer is my grandpa, and he actually saw JFK right before he was assassinated, like in the parade, a couple blocks down. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, I was just two blocks down, and uh, we didn't know what happened until after the fact. But... Wow. Yeah, when I was, um, you know, with your dad and stuff, I mean, I had been a student of the assassination for years by, by that time, and it was just... Uh, it was very emotional. I mean, it was visceral and emotional, and um, you know, to actually be there and see it, it was uh, some some knucklehead and some, you know, oh, this is just a fantasy. Oh, really? Well, why don't why don't you just go and through every single person and 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 dismiss and tell us why it's a fantasy? Yeah. But that's how the game played. It's always ad hominem attacks, but but no one ever addresses the actual issues. So. Yep. Yep, I personally, I, we've done a couple shows on the JFK assassination and, and I have my own theories and when I was actually looking at that footage, I saw that my dad took a photo of something and it had to do with my theory. And I was like, did he have, oh, well. the, did he have the same theory about the fatal shot? Because I think Lee Harvey Oswald was a complete patsy, but... I, I, complete I, patsy. We're going to talk about it later, so... If you would like to submit a story topic or have any other inquiries please email submit at skibanewsnation.com also you can email jeremiah skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com also email jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com if you want to write us a letter send us something help support us or just say hi please send your letter to jeremiah skiba p.o box 560-271 the colony texas 75056 if you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you will get exclusive content, shoutouts, and much more. And you can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. I want to know what the truth is. And I hope that people, my son, anybody, if my name comes up, whether you like me, whether you agree with me or not, at least you can respect the fact that he's on a quest for truth. He's on a quest for truth. Welcome to Skiba News Nation. Bringing you unfiltered views, news, interviews, discussions, and more. And now, here's your host, Jeremiah Skiba, award-winning musician and son of Rob Skiba.
Hey, Skiba News Nation family. Today we have a very special guest on our show, award-winning author, filmmaker, and researcher, Mr. L.A. Marzulli. Welcome to Skiba News Nation, Mr. Marzulli. It's an honor to have you as a guest on today's show. How Great are you? Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So what experience led you to the path that you are on today, like researching Nephilim and the supernatural? There was a book that I read way back in 1988, 89, somewhere in there. Um, it was by my mentor, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. He became my mentor. It was called The Omega Conspiracy. And, and that book changed my life, completely changed my life. Uh, as I was reading the book, I would go back and look at the footnotes, look at the source material like G.H. Pember, for instance, Earth's Earliest Ages. And all of us who really wound up doing what we do, Many of us cut our teeth from Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, and then, of course, you know, G.H. Pember and others that Dr. Thomas references. So he, I'm in California. Dr. Thomas lived in California at the time. He passed away, by the way, in 2014. And um, but when Thomas Horn rewrote the book or republished the book, um, I got to write the forward to it. I received my honorary doctorate from Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. He became a mentor. I think if, if he could see where we have taken it, like um, down in Peru and Mexico and Teotihuacan and Machu Picchu in um, Gilgai Raphaim over in Israel, in Mengus, Spain, uh, the island of Gozo, Karnak, France, America Stonehenge here in the States. I mean, he, he would just be astounded at the information that we've uncovered because we've been on the trail for a long time now. And we, and we continue to be on the show. We just got back from filming in an undisclosed location. And that film probably will come out in about six months from now, because there's other films that are in the pipeline um, that we're trying to get out. But, um, well, you know, all I can tell you guys is this. There's a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. There's no mm -hmm. doubt. Absolutely hidden. And that's why we're on the trail. What is the most fascinating thing that you have learned during your uh, years and years of research, do you think? Well, this is one of the skulls from Paracas. Wow. And it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's a mold. And, you know, we can kind of walk through this. This is, in my opinion, is a genetic anomaly. So we've got um, the elongation that you can see. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, very pronounced. You've got a very robust jaw. You've got also, let me, this side, look at this zygomatic arch here. And this, this zygomatic arch is very, very pronounced, as you can see. And then we've got the orbits, the orbits here, which are 25 to 30% larger than a human being. And the pupillary distance between them, which is here, the pupillary distance between this eye and this other eye is about 45 millimeters. So this, this guy probably could see in the dark. There should be a sagittal suture. These are the sutures right here. You can see that. And mm -hmm. there should be one that goes from the center here all the way back and of course there's not wow. there's absolutely no no suture at all the, the smoking gun and this is the work of our anthropologists 
on our team, uh, Rick Woodward. So you can see right here, the foramen magnum. This is the foramen magnum right, right there. Now the pencil, the pen will go in there. And the, the area around the pen is just to keep the pen in place. But the actual foramen magnum is, is this area right here. Mm. The, out, the outline where my finger is, that this outline right here, let me see so I can see it, right there. That, that's, and that's where the skeleton and all the tubing, the wires that are inside our spinal column connect to the brain. It's, it's actually amazing. The problem mm. is the foramen magnum is all the way to the exterior, all the way to the exterior of the skull. If it's any further out, it's outside the skull. That foramen magnum should be right about here. Let me tilt this down. Wow. Kind of hard to do things upside down. It, sh it should be in, in the center of a skull, and, and it's not. It should be like right there, and it's not. So the bottom line is you, you cannot genetically, or you cannot cradle board an infant and mm -hmm. move the foramen magnum. You just can't do it. This is done in utero. This is something that is genetic in, in our film. Uh, on the DNA of the Paraka skulls. We show um, surgeons and medical doctors, anthropologists, archaeologists, um, chiropractors, just this whole multidiscipline team. And, we've, and they all come on the record and say, this is genetic. We are looking at a genetic anomaly, which of course, that's what we believe and that's what uh, you know we're promulgating. So that to me is one of the most astounding um, bits of information that we've gleaned from being on the trail. And all this, wow. what's fascinating about it, it, all this ties back into the biblical narrative because it shows the mingling of the seed. Genesis 3.15 sets up the rest of the biblical narrative. The seed of the dragon will be at war with the seed of the woman. That, I mean, that's the whole Bible in, yep. in a nutshell right there. It's a seed war. Wow, that's absolutely amazing to see you walk through just the the visuals of how there's proof genetically that there's something going on here. And it's not just what a lot of the arguments have been is it's a, a school wrapping or something that was done post-birth. Um, very, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's... it's. Uh, these are uh, my molds that my dad had. Right, right. So I just thought I would show that. Um, but yeah, these are very, very interesting looking things. Almost wow. works of art. Whoever molded these did an amazing job. And one's a male and one's a female. I can never tell which one is which, but I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Jake, now, yeah now of the for the skulls these are actual uh skulls that were found and then somebody molded these figures that we're looking at here where are the actual skulls housed well the ones the ones that we took um like this one we we unwrapped it a two thousand year old baby that that's what you're looking at right here that we we unwrapped the baby skull we call it the baby and notice the, the huge orbits, 25 to 30% bigger. Once again, the foramen magnum is all the way to the uh, the back of the skull. That's where the foramen magnum was. I mean, it's all, all the way to the posterior. 
Um, this thing was very delicate. It was in a private, excuse me, a private museum. You can see the elongation. Um, it's not cradle headboarded. There's no way, um, in our opinion. And the child died. And it was it, we, we actually went to the grave site where the Wakaros, the grave robbers, uh, took took it from. And um, I mean, there you have it. It's uh, you know, we unwrapped the baby, we unwrapped that skull, we, we, we did the mold, Joe Taylor did the mold of that skull, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. The skull right now, as far as I know, was in the Senior One Paracas History Museum uh, in, in Paracas, but, you know, I haven't been down there since 2019, so it's, you know, it's, it's like four years ago, basically, wow. one on five. I I uh, know Joe Taylor well. Uh, I got to spend uh, several visits with him, and uh, it, it was sad that he passed away recently. But he had some amazing yeah. work done um, in the field of archaeology and, and showing the biblical truth uh, behind the evidence we can find. And he was really good at painting and plastering. So <laughs> really, really liked Joe. Um, Great I did want to ask uh, a question. Uh, you know, whenever we talk about Nephilim, I want to be aware of kind of audiences that are out there for most part it's the mainstream of christianity that is really opposed to this idea of genetic corruption and nephilim and i wanted to ask you uh what is the motivation behind christian doctrinal perspectives that make believing in a supernatural world so difficult to believe for example like why is the sethite theory so prevalent in church teaching today well, and, and this is problematic because I was, I was, you know, I mean, I'm constantly railing against this. Um, the Sethite theory was brought in hundreds of years after the New Testament, basically in the fourth century. Um, and that now is taught as fact. So if you were going to keep one thing away from the people and keep them in the dark, it's the book of Enoch and Genesis 3.15. So how do you explain the Sethite theory in, in light of Genesis 3.15? How, how does that make any sense? When Genesis 3.15 tells us very succinctly that there's going to be a seed war, that the seed of the dragon will be at war at enmity with the seed of the woman. The one coming from the woman, the Proto-Evangelium, will crush the dragon's head. I mean, I've heard some real smart people tap dance around that like, like you can't even imagine. Well, it really doesn't say what it means or mean what it says. It doesn't, well, seed, you know, it's kind of, eh, it's not what it's talking about. There is, it's a seed war. Because when, when we get to Genesis 6, that's the eruption of the seed war. When we get to the Tower of Babel, we see that Nimrod becomes Geborah, Nephilim, through some sort of ritualistic sex magic. When we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Nephilim are there. How do we know? Because Jude tells us that I got a little itch back here. Because Jude tells us that um, they left their first estate. The angels left their first estate. Then he goes similar in a similar matter, Sodom and Gomorrah giving themselves over. I mean, what do you think they're giving themselves over to the angels who left their first estate? That's not a stretch. Anytime a Nephilim are present, the judgment is always the same. There's never any grace and mercy because these entities are soulless. They're hybrid entities. They're never supposed to be here. The Lord, God, allows 
it to happen for a period of time. For instance, when he talks to Abraham, you know, Abe, you're going to be a great nation from your from your seed. All the nations of the of the earth will be blessed. But you know, you're going to get down to Egypt for 40 years, and so the sin of the Amorites comes into its fullness. So there's there's precedent. We've we've got we've got scripture. We've got precedent that tells us that God, you know, could blink his eyes and destroy them all. He doesn't do that. Finally, and most people don't understand this, when Joshua and Caleb and, and, the, and the, all the tribes of Israel go into the promised land, that is the full-blown manifestation of the seed war. On the field of battle, you have what's going to be the seed of the woman. It's right there. Because from those 12 tribes, that's where, the, that's where Messiah comes from even though no one knows at, the, at that point yet, you know, where, how it's all going to come about. But the seed war manifests completely in the field of battle. Joshua and Caleb are there, and then you got the seed of the dragon. You got the Nephilim tribe, the Zanzamim, the Emims, the Raphaim, the Nephilim, the Anakim. They're all there in the promised land. So that's the, 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 the culmination, the manifestation of the seed war. Why it make, brings to mind that quote: "The greatest trick of the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist," and perhaps that's why this Sethite theory is so pushed heavily on the church, is to convince us, "Hey, there's no bad, there's no boogie monster out there, there's no Nephilim hybrids or, or anything like that," and um, and it, it definitely does seem like there's an element of scripture that's unlocked, understanding the whole seed war between uh, these Nephilim. Uh, entities and and mankind. You brought up the book of Enoch. I, I wanted to ask, is there any parts of the book of Enoch that are your favorite, that really stand out to you as something that's been instrumental in some of these, uh, these uh, you know, pursuits? Well, in, in chapter 6 mirrors are, are chapter 6 in the Bible, almost exactly word for word, with a couple of exceptions. It, it amplifies what we're looking at and tells us exactly who the sons of God are. The angels of heaven. That's it, I mean, that's what it is. So when you read Enoch 6, it parallels the Genesis 6 account almost verbatim. And then it gives us an insight uh, where it tells us what happens on Mount Hermon, why they do what they do, why this, you know, uh, we're going to do this thing no matter what. And so it's, it's like it's in your face. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, I think that's so important for our audience to understand kind of the backstory. Bereshit, Genesis, chapter 6. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of Elohim saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them women of all which they chose. <laughs> chapter 6. And it came to pass. When the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said unto them, 
I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him, and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations, not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together, and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all two hundred, who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon, because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. Um, I also find it interesting that we get what the fallen angels taught the men. And we see this quid pro quo happening, where we'll give you technology, just give us access to the women, which I believe is happening today, right here in modernity. So, you know, Enoch is essential, Enoch 1, is essential reading, and why people argue whether it's, you know, canonicity is, it should be part of the canon, it shouldn't be part of the canon, you know, and people just argue that till the cows come home. And, you know, my answer to that is, uh, it's the book of Enoch, in the Ethiopian Bible, it precedes Genesis. So wow. yeah, I'll just leave it, I'll just leave it at that. So, you know, people jump up and down with the versions. You know, you got the King James only crowd and this is it. Well, what did people do before sixteen eleven? So, yep. you know, it's a straw man argument. I get it, the King James is a great translation, but there's a lot of great translations, and there's a lot of translations that aren't so great. So do we what do we do we look at the the the, um, the catholic bible which has the entire apocrypha in it do we do we look at that their translation do we look at um let's say uh, the russian orthodox bible i mean you know, it, this is this is what drives um, a lot of people who aren't christians they go which bible which bible are we supposed to believe because there's so many different versions of it so as a researcher as for, first of all as a christian and then as a researcher, I, I read as many different translations as I can. If I'm studying something, I'll do a deep dive and, and read a passage, you know, 20, 25 different translations in one sitting. Why not? Why not see what they have to say? Sometimes when I'm presenting uh, to an audience to at a conference, you know, I will show them four or five different translations to make, make sure that it's one of my favorites is Genesis 3.15 from the, um, um, the the message Bible, because it's a little different. It says, Jesus is talking to the dragon, you know, I'm declaring war between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. I just love that, because it's, it's a different way of saying it, more more in the vernac modern day vernacular. But see, that's, this is, it, if we don't get Genesis 3.15, right, like I said earlier, we don't get the rest of the biblical prophetic narrative. We just don't. It's, it's we're yeah. left in the dark, and so people never have an understanding. When you get to, let's say, Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not cleave to them. Well, what the heck does that mean? Who are they? It all goes back to Genesis 3.15. Without the proper exegesis of that scripture, when you get to Daniel chapter 2, it's clueless. When we get to the fact of the son of perdition, that the Antichrist, he doesn't go to some, you know, Welcome to the School of the Antichrist, you know. This semester we've got 20 top candidates, 
you know, to become the Antichrist. I mean, he is the literal seed of the dragon. That's who he is, in my opinion. He's a hybrid. He's modern-day Nephilim. For another question, um, uh, are there any stories uh, in terms of uh, not necessarily biblical texts, but like in other cultures that you believe contain uh, accurate depictions of Nephilim or or what are the most intriguing to you in other cultures that stand out as uh, as stories regarding Nephilim giants? Well, we, when we look at the Anunnaki, I mean, we, we get pictures of like, you know, Nimrod holding a little lion like it's a, it's a kitty cat. We, when we look at Egypt, we get, in fact, I mean, if you look, look right behind me at, at the picture right here, you can see the giant like right there. Um, Native Americans have, have petroglyphs of giants, a little guy holding a spear like this, same, same type of deal. I mean, it's everywhere. I think the Anunnaki were um, fallen angels that came down because it's almost exactly the same thing. There's a quid pro quo, they give knowledge, but then there's this whole genome thing happening. And what amazes me is that, you know, New Agers will talk about uh, the Anunnaki and it precedes the Bible. Well, it's a straw man argument. Just because, just because the writings of Sumerian tablets predate the Bible, that doesn't mean anything. So, so what? So who cares? It's like the God of the Bible waits until there's a full-blown occult paradigm in operation in Egypt. It's full-blown. So he's allowed the enemy to basically entrench himself, um, dress himself. The enemy owns the planet as far as uh, specifically when you look at Egypt and the gods of Egypt and what they were. And so when Moses and Aaron come into the scene, this is, you know, a thousand years, hundreds of years after the Anunnaki, after the Sumerian clay tablets. But God waits. Just because the Anunnaki pre predates Moses and Aaron doesn't mean anything. It's a straw man argument. That doesn't validate the text at all. What validates it is the prophetic that's in from Genesis to the book of Revelation. There's no other book like that. The Anunnaki and the Sumerian tablets have no prophecy, not like the Bible, not which talks about the redemption of, of mankind and this whole this whole deal and, and where we are and how everything goes like dominoes with the prophetic word. They don't have anything like that. So what I find interesting is, you know, the Lord allows the full-blown paradigm of the Egyptians to come into its fullness, just like the sin of the Amorites. And then he brings in Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron come in and they throw the staff down. But the Egyptians, they have no problem with that. Their, their magicians throw their staffs down and they become serpents. So you can see that, you know, when we, when we read this, I mean, can you, no one's running out of the building going, oh my gosh, there's snakes in the, the Pharaoh. What are we going to do? No one's doing that. This is normal to them. This is absolutely normal to them. Oh, so what? So big deal. In fact, it's so normal that the Egyptian magicians duplicate the first three plagues of the Bible. And then they kind of go, whoa, we're dealing with the real guy here. And then they fade from the scene. They're never mentioned again because they realize that, you know, oops, we're going to lose. And they do. I find it so interesting in that account. Uh, there's uh, several different texts that seem to indicate the magicians of Pharaoh were the sons of Balaam the prophet, and through Balaam, 
uh, it was a whole family affair because Balaam was supposedly related to Laban as a descendant through that line. And so, you know, of course, Moses through the line of Jacob and uh, Balaam and his magician sons through the line of Laban. Uh, so there is a whole family drama going on there that's, you know, kind of tucked beneath the surface. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm digressing there. Uh, back on this topic of uh, the significance of the seed war and how it really unlocks a lot of things in terms of eschatology and real world application. I wanted to ask, what is the current genetic corruption agenda that's making today as the days of Noah, i.e. like, why are they introducing mRNA tech and GMO foods and animal meats heavily medicated and food preservatives? Like, how does this ancient topic which maybe the modern church looks at as like a vain pursuit of, oh, why would you care if there are, were giants made by angels or if there's the sons of Seth? Why is that something that's important to understand in today's world? Because Jesus warns us it'll be like the days of Noah when he returns. <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is what I mean. Look, I, I'm part of a church. I love a church. But the church in mass is, is willfully ignorant of what they're looking at. So if it's if a Genesis six narrative is just a Sethite theory, then who cares, right? Then who cares? Then what what is Jesus talking about when he says it'll be like the days of Noah? And again, you you hear uh, exegesis on this from from commentators and well-meaning people. Oh, you know they were just the the, the the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking, and you know people were just making merry. That's not what the text says. Who are they in the text? The sons of God, they're the ones who are eating and drinking. They're the ones who were given in marriage. That's what, you know, why would Jesus point us to Genesis 6? Because it's all about the seed. And unless we understand it's a seed war, when we get the scriptures like in, in Luke 21, Matthew 24, you know, at John 13, we're clueless. We have no idea what we're looking at. Oh, well, you know, they were just really evil people. No, they were hybrids. The Nephilim were there. And so without an understanding of the, of the seed war of Genesis 3.15, of Genesis 6, when we get the passage, it's like it'll be like the days of Noah. We are clueless. There's also a scripture where Jesus tells us that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And he's talking about the tribulation period, which I do not believe the church is destined to go into the tribulation. We're not appointed breath. But I do believe this. I do believe that we are in a window of time where we're seeing, just to your point, that they're messing with the genome. They're doing things that, that are unprecedented. Unprecedented. And this is why he's got to come back soon, because we're at a point where you can't fix it. We can push back against the narrative, um, and I do that every day, but we can't fix this. No, it's, it's beyond fixing, in my opinion at this point so now i guess awareness is a a, a good defense uh, i mean it reminds me of what's talked about in second thessalonians those who don't have a love for the truth buy a lie uh so that they're damned and that's a pretty heavy statement you know to be made and, and maybe that's what the role of the end time watchman is is you know to make the people aware of all these agendas that are making it as the days of noah in today's world um 
Uh, since we're on current events in a way, like moving into today's world, uh, please, can you give us your perspective on the recent creature sightings in South America and, and Las Vegas, for example? What are your perspectives on that? Uh, Gary Stearman had a very interesting uh, commentary, which was a private conversation that we had uh, regarding the Vegas 10-footers in the backyard. He, and it was, I've never heard anybody address it like this, but Gary said, you know, what if, um, you know, like when you line up an army in the old days, well, let's say World War II, and somebody gets the orders wrong, and somebody goes out ahead, all right, guys, you come back, you're not supposed to do that. Is it possible that that's what we're looking at in Vegas? Very, it's a lot of food for thought. Did they, did, did these guys kind of jump the gun, as it were? And, right, speculation, don't know. Uh, the stuff happening in Peru, you know, guys with jetpacks at 2 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night, not buying the jetpack thing at all. Um, I've looked at the videos. They're, they're, they don't impress me at all, except... The thing on the roof seems to be shifting. It's, it seems to be shape shifting and changing and morphing. That is a sign of what they look like. So, why? And, and here's the deal, guys. And, unless you're there, boots on the ground, you just don't know. Not, not. You know, someone sent me this picture, which got a lot of legs on the internet, um, of a, a 12-foot Sasquatch, and next of a Sasquatch is a guy and he's got bare feet and it's like 1877, whatever. Well, that's AI. That's completely 100% AI. Hmm. So we are now living in a, in, a, in a world that you can't tell anymore what you're looking at. You don't know. Yeah. Now, I, you know, right now I can kind of go, someone sent me these four, three, four, three or four saucers, UFOs flying information like this, okay? And then all of a sudden over here, shh, the jet comes, tra you know, trailing them. And I, I wrote him back, I said, AI. It's not, it, it, it was too good to be true. I said, that's AI. So you're, you're at the point where you're artificial intelligence, this is why the writer's strike in Hollywood. Because mm -hmm. AI yeah. could pump out a script in a minute. I mean, literally in a minute. You, you tell it what it wants, give it the parameters, 30, you know, a minute or two later, you've got a, a whole script for a 90-minute movie. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, you wow. know, the problem with this is, is it obfuscates the, the real work that some of us do. Like when I was out in Catalina and I discovered that nine-foot giant, uh, I'll just show you guys this. The book's right here. I keep it on the desk. So, so here's... Here's the, um, do I have it? Do I have it bookmarked? Of course not. But um, I'll show you in just a second here once they get to it. Yeah, there's a ticket. Oh, since I'm scrolling, here, here's what the baby skull looked like. Oh, wow. As, as we were unwrapping it. And then, this is all in On the Trail of the Nephilim, by the way. It's a great book. You should get, get a copy. I will. And see if I can find it. Pretty cool. So this is 
This is the baby right here. Right, right there. Wow. Right there. That's the baby skull. So looking at Ralph, Ralph Glidden. So this is the picture I discovered out on Catalina Island. So that is a nine footer right there. That's a nine footer. Wow. So when you, when you take Ralph and you stand him up like that, he's five foot eight. And then you take the skeleton out and you take him out and that's what you look like. And then it's this. So you're basically a nine footer. Wow. So that was, I discovered that picture out on Catalina Island. That's, that's my discovery. Other people have taken it and make it, you know, they make it sound like they discovered it. But I, I was the guy in the archives who found the picture and then took the picture of the picture. So later on, they came back to museum. And let me see if I can find that real quick, which is just incredible. So they, they showed us um, what that was. But lo and behold, where's Ralph? Ralph. <laughs> Hold on. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, they, let me see if I can, it's, it's really a, a fascinating book, if I do say so myself, because, you know, it's, it's got a lot of information. I mean, we're, we are talking a ton of information here. How can our viewers so, find it? Just go to my website, lamarzuli.net. Sweet. lamarzuli.net. And um, yeah, you can. Sorry, guys. No worries. Nope. Elongated pictures of elongated skulls. That was on Catalina Island, also. You see that? Mm -hmm. Man. That was on Catalina Island in, in the archives. See, I wasn't supposed to find any of this stuff. But I did. And then you get this. Let me see if I can find this. Why can't I find? Give me a second. It's around here somewhere. Because when we when we went back to the museum, with uh, there it is. So you guys know what the original picture looks like. So we walk into the museum, and this is what we see. And then we we hold the book up. This is what the picture should look like. Wow. So there, there's the picture that was in the museum. They cropped the giant out of the picture. Huh. Wow. So why, why would they? Yeah, exactly. Why would they do that? Well, um, well, we ran out of space. Yeah, that's the ticket. No. <laughs> Because there are a bunch in, of in your reasons. research, what made that like the archives at Catalina? Like, w why those particular archives were you looking? Uh, or, I mean, is there, you know, places you think that they still have some of these things in the archives that are able to be found? Oh. Or, or what brought you to search there? Ab absolutely, the, the Catalina one happened because we had a, I had a tip from a fellow researcher who said that the records of Ralph Glidden, who was that archaeologist from 1919 to 1921, that cache of records that had been missing for over 50 years was in a trunk in the attic of the uh, the round building, the, the movie theater on, on 
at, at Avalon on Catalina Island. So I, it took about six months and back and forth writing to the museum to let me look at the archives. And after I promised a thousand dollars donation, that's when they let me in because I'm not an archeologist. And within an hour, I had those pictures. They were left. In other words, the, the cache of records had not been entirely sanitized. Wow. And I found, I, I found, I found six fingers. I found elongated skulls. I found, you know, two nine footers in there. Normally all that stuff is, is scraped. You don't, you don't see it. It's not there anymore. You know, they, they go in and they'll just completely take anything that would show um, giants because it goes against the Darwinian paradigm. It actually goes back and reinforces the biblical narrative. Also the narrative of First Nation people who state on the record that there were giants, red-haired, six-fingered giants in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So what do, you know, who's telling the truth? You tell me. I know the Smithsonian has such a role in sanitizing all across, you know, United States, all these finds and digs. Um, I mean, is there any way to prove to the layperson that there's a direct contradiction of interest there? Like proof that the Smithsonian is hiding this stuff or is it kind of just, well, we don't have it anymore, so we can just speculate? Well, the, the tenured archeologists and the powers that be will look at my work and call me a pseudo archeologist. They'll label me a racist because I'm not buying the particular paradigm. Let me, let me tell you something. When we were out um, at America Stonehenge, and this is, this is our, our material. This is in my films, On the Trail of the Nephilim, number four and five. So when you go to America Stonehenge and you're in the center of that hinge and you go out to the summer solstice standing stone. So here's the center. And then you go out to the summer solstice standing stone. The sun, let me do it this way. The sun comes up over that summer solstice standing stone. So that's interesting. And Kelsey Stone and Dennis Stone, his father, and Robert Stone, Kelsey's grandfather, all knew that. That was something that they discovered. They realized that whoever built this America Stonehenge in New Hampshire um, knew about the solstices and the equinoxes and other things. So Kelsey is on Google Earth. And he's just kind of messing around. He's not sure, you know, where where this alignment may go. So he goes on Google Earth. He goes from the center of America Stonehenge out to the summer solstice standing stone, and he draws a line on Google Earth. Well, he extends that line further and further and further, and now he's over the Atlantic. And then after the Atlantic Ocean, he finds himself in Ireland, and now he's in southern England. And he thinks to himself, gee, I wonder how close I am to Stonehenge, England. That line bisects dead center the two trilothons at Stonehenge, England. And you can't do that in the ancient world. You're looking at spherical trigonometry in order to do that. Wow. You can't do that. Can't do that. So it's right and 
what's even more astounding, there is a stone. This is in our film, number four and number five, um, Amitrel of a Nephilim, America Stonehenge, the Axis Mundi is number five, and number four is um, the Bow Stone, the Canaanite Connection. So I'm, I'm in the museum at America Stonehenge. I'm with Kelsey Stone. And I go, Kelsey, what, you know, he's giving me a tour. And I go, well, what, what's this? And Kelsey goes, these are the stones in the display case where we found writing. Okay, that's really cool. So what's this one say? It's a real big stone. It's about like this big. Okay. Weighs about 30 pounds. And he goes, oh, that's, that's the, uh, we, that's, we, we call that the dedication stone. And it's written in Iberian Punic. And it lay, uh, we discovered it in a collapsed chamber on the site about 18 inches down or eight inches down in, in the soil. We found this rock and we didn't know what it said. And so it lay in the museum for like 11 years until Professor Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University came and looked at it. And he stated on the record that that looks like Iberian Punic and he thinks he can translate it. So he either took the stone back or did a rubbing of it and he, and he translated it. I go, well, Kelsey, what, what's the translation say? And he says, to bow with the Canaanites in dedication. And I left this in the film. I go, you hear this long pause. And then I go, what did you just say? Because I can't believe what I'm hearing. And he kind of laughs nervously and said, yeah, to, to, to bow with the Canaanites in dedication. And I'm saying to myself, you have no idea what you have. We took the thing out, out of the display case brought it to a table and then we filmed and I basically lectured on the Nephilim. The Canaanites are an, an overarching umbrella for the Nephilim tribe. What is that doing in New Hampshire? And this is why someone like, oh, you're a pseudo-archaeologist because, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, this is, this is real. Someone, Barry Fell, looked at the inscription in Iberian Punic and translated it. So let me think. Someone's creating a hoax, so they, they go tink, 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 tink in the stone. It sits in the museum for 11 years. Wow, what a great hoax, guys. Way to go. Nonsense. Nonsense. It's the real deal. But see, it goes against the prevailing paradigm from the Smithsonian, from mainstream archaeologists, who tell us there are no giants, that Amerindians built everything, that there was no one over here before Columbus. And it's all a lie, in my opinion. But if you go against that, anyone like myself that goes against the prevailing paradigm, whoa, you're a racist, you're a pseudo-archaeologist, and they, but they attack the data. You call me any name you want, I don't care. But you tell me what that stone's doing here at America Stonehenge and how it got here. And why if someone's trying to create a hoax, do they write it in Iberian Punic, which, you know, two people on the planet can read. I mean, seriously, guys? And I'm supposed to believe this? You just don't like it because wow. it goes, look, it's just like our DNA. We're the only people, the only Christian ministry that took DNA from these guys and, and, and sampled it at different labs. This little baby that you're looking at here, that came back U2E1. That's Eastern Europe. That rewrites history. There's no contamination. We unwrapped the baby skull. We took material 
immediately that we had, that we had that fallen from a skull, hair, pieces of bone, tag it and bag it, and off, off it went to the lab. U2E1, it's Eastern Europe. That rewrites history. You know what we get? Oh, it's all contaminated. No, it's not. That's just that's just your little way out. That's a straw man argument. Prove to us that it's a contamination. It's not a contamination, but that's how the game is played. Wow, that and you're right. That does really show that there's a conflict of interests, uh, and I, I Very think much a, so. a lot of modern science uh, operates that way. And and you know they have a prevalent theory, and it is so difficult for them to swallow the pill that there is a different perspective that could be, you know, presented. I mean, people dealt with that for centuries. You know, coming up with a better idea and then fighting back against the mainstream, uh, being blacklisted if they came up with a, a more reasonable. Uh, perspective. Uh, in a lot of your research, you've mentioned uh, the ancient architecture and this celestial geometry that appears in the serpent mounds and in ancient burial mounds. Um, and you've mentioned how in some of your research, they're based on cyclical lunar patterns like the 18 and a half year metonic cycle and uh, the 30, there's the 33 year sun lunar cycle and there's also like the 72-year celestial North Pole cycle. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because have you noticed that there's any patterns with these cycles and, uh, and, and things that we're seeing in today's world? Like perhaps the, uh, there's a social psychological aspect to these cycles that the occult or the Illuminati are using these 18 and a half year cycles for things that we see in today's world, the ancient geometry and the ancient way of recognizing these cycles, how do you see that you know, related in today's world? Well, I mean, first of all, to realize that there's a lunar cycle, the Metonic cycle every 18 and a half years. Uh, if you're an Amerindian in Ohio, let's say 3000 years ago, and you look up and you see the moon, and you realize that it's coming up in a different place. So you make a, you put some rocks in, in the ground, that becomes your center point. And then you start putting stakes in the ground when you see the moon. So you have one guy at the vantage point going, no, move it to the left, he puts the stake there. And then it, where the sun, where the moon sets, you put another stake. Well, you're doing this for like 30 days and you're doing pretty good. And then you realize that, oh, it's a five day rainstorm, can't see the moon. Now what? Book of Enoch tells us that Sariel, the fallen angel, handed the knowledge of the course of the moon to mankind. So here's the deal. If you have those stakes in the ground, and this is, there's a mathematician called Tom, he's an Englishman, T-H-O-M, and he posited the, the very thing I'm saying, that this is how ancients figured it out. Well, okay, so, but Tom's not accounting for the fact that you get a four-day rainstorm, now what? And more importantly, a person trying to track the, the lunar cycle doesn't know it's an 18 and a half year cycle. So it's, he's kind of, he or she is kind of going like, well, maybe, um, maybe it's a five-year cycle. So he's just collecting the data, but he doesn't know that person, he or she doesn't know what year they're calculating from. In other words, right now, if I jumped in, the, the lunar, I believe a lunar standstill is in 2025. And that happens right over Newark, 
the octagon mount in Newark. That's the next lunar standstill, I believe, was 2025. So I'm in 2023. So if I jumped in right now, right, I'm in the 23rd year of, I'm, I'm sorry, not, let me see, 18, 18.6. So I'm, I'm in the 16.5 year. I'm in the 16th year of the lunar cycle. But I don't know that. I don't know I'm in the 16th year of a lunar cycle. I have no idea because I don't know it's an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. So how do how does a person or a group of people calculate this? Where is the where is the buffalo hide or the deer hide that shows the 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 um, discovery of the 18 and a half year lunar cycle? It's not there. There's nothing in the archaeological record uh, in and around Ohio which tells us that so-called Amerindians knew about this and able to implement it. And the straw man argument is, well, human beings are resourceful and it's here, so they must have known. Well, that's a straw man argument. I mean, you know, that, that doesn't do any good. You have absolutely no proof. The burden of proof is on you, not me. The burden of proof is on you. If you're insisting that Amerindians did this, then where's the proof? There is none. There's nothing in the archeological record, not a thing nothing there's no because you've got to calculate this you've got to be able to sit there and and understand wait a minute we saw the moon do this way over here and that's how we know it's an 18 and a half year lunar cycle it's not there it's just not there and so you say well maybe it's a coinka thing no it's not in the octagon now if you know anything about it it's advanced geometry it's advanced geometry and not only is it it's is an advanced geometry. It gets into uh, geodesy. It gets into um, the astronomical alignments. Um, it's it's mind-boggling. We just we just filmed there. We just did a film, and we brought in mathematicians, surveyors, archaeologists, um, and and Fritz Zimmerman, who's been really he's the guy that sort of put all this on the map. And, uh, and myself, of course, and we we filmed and filmed and filmed, and then we brought everybody to the octagon now. Now, Fritz had been there, like I have, numerous times. But but the people that were part of our, um, the interviews that we did had never been there. They were just completely blown away. Because the octagon now is an irregular octagon. So first of all, let, let me just show you something real quick. So I'm, I got a pad of paper here, okay? And I'm gonna draw an octagon. It's an eight-sided deal. Two, three, four, five, seven, and eight. So there's my sloppy octopus. Okay? Right there. But in order to draw, and this is why we brought in Dottie, who's the mathematician. In order to draw an octagon, you need to know the angles. You need a protractor. You need a ruler. It's one thing to draw an octagon like this on a piece of paper. It's another thing to create an octagon which encompasses 50 acres of land in Ohio. And that's what the octagon does. Wow. And then so you get archaeo... Go ahead. Yeah, so the, it really does show that these people in ancient architecture really had some kind of influence from spiritual entities helping them understand these cycles to base their architecture off of. Um, 
And wow, that's just amazing. I, I mean, for the sake of time, I'm going to, Jeremiah had some questions, but I was just going to say the whole reason I asked that interesting tie to the metatonic cycle and how it's an 18 and a half year cycle and, and you, what you're sharing about how it shows there's a supernatural influence happening in the past is it shows also, I think today there's a connection between current events because, for example, uh, if you look up the number of days between, say, September 11th, 2001, and when COVID pandemic was announced as a global pandemic, uh, it was exactly 18 and a half years. And so the point I'm trying to get at is the, the, the you know, rulers of this world who set up the global stage, uh, they seem to be following some of these same ancient patterns that we see in this ancient uh, architecture. So it's a really interesting uh, topic. Um, but anyways, Jeremiah had some questions. I know you're short on time. So Jeremiah, uh, you wanted to yeah, so my mom uh, shared some videos with me of you and my dad at Dealey Plaza, and she said that you said it was like a, a talking or taking a child to a candy store. So I wanted to show you this quick little clip, <laughs> this quick yeah, little clip if absolutely. I could. So if, if we could play that clip. Some never before seen video and photos. So I, I thought I'd play that since you were friends with my dad and, and you may have disagreed on several things, but, but he loved you. And uh, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on, the, on Ski Beneath Nation. This is the way that, that I honor his legacy. And, you know, if I could ask you one more question, uh, what is your theory on the JFK assassination? Like, where do you think the fatal shot was shot after going to Daily Plaza? Well... I, I, there's a couple of places. Some people say the storm drain, mm -hmm. but I've been to the storm drain and I've looked at it and the angles just don't match up. I think the headshot came from the grassy knoll. Um, there were multiple shooters. The Dow Tech building um, probably was the, was the throat wound that came from the back. Um, you know, they, they know, uh, for instance, he goes like this. Mm -hmm. This 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 throat room was an entrance wound, and they know that the windshield had a hole in it. Yep. Um, so the the he goes like this. He brings his hands up, and then he's he's kind of like, and see that there's the smoke. One of the smoking guns is, and this was in I think the the fiftieth anniversary, something like that, or the fortieth anniversary. Um, 
it, it doesn't matter, but it was on the History Channel. You can go on YouTube and find it, mm -hmm. but it's hard to find because they've scrubbed it. Yep. So Kennedy and the crew, they all land at Love Field. Now they're in the limousines. Behind the limousine are, are welded to the bumper are two stands, one on the left, one on the right. So Secret Service guys stand up like this on the back of a limousine. Yep. Which means anything happens, they're springing into action immediately. And, and, um, at the sound of gunfire, that would have been it. He never would have been killed. But they're told on film, they're told to stand down. And the Secret Service guy's going like, what? He does it three times. What? What? And he watches the limousine and JFK's got no protection. Fox News showed this very recently, like last year. Somebody had a clip of a Secret Service guy straddling on the back bumper right before the assassination, right before there. He's like, he's climbed on, he's like punched down like this, and then he's told to come off, and he, and he turns and his hands are up like, what? Because he knows they're breaking protocol. He knows they're breaking protocol. And wow. minutes later, Kennedy's dead. So Kennedy's head goes back and to the left, back and to the left. And when you stand in Dallas behind the picket fence and you just sight like this, you pretend you're holding a rifle and you look at the X, which is on, on, the, on the street. Mm -hmm. You look at the big X with the head of the kill shot. It's, it's the grassy knoll, in my opinion, all day long. It's like you can track, track that trajectory back and to the left. And yep. the autopsy was fudged. I mean, the cover-up is unbelievable. And uh, we've never had a president since except for Reagan. And they tried to kill him, too. Mm -hmm. And President Trump. And President yeah. Trump was 24-7, 365-day, hit pieces by all the media mm -hmm. against him, including Russian collusion, which was proven to be concocted by Hillary Clinton and the FBI allegedly was complicit and and nothing happens. No one's brought to justice, the greatest political travesty in the nation's history. And no, no one's brought, no one's accountable, but they're gonna get Trump on, you know, the January 6ers, oh my God. Dang Trump. <laughs> now I'm, yeah, I'm of I mean, course a big Trump we, fan, but. <laughs> As you can see, but next time you come to Dallas, I would love to give you a personal tour of like the footsteps of Lee Harvey Oswald and like where he's buried because not not a whole lot of people know where he's buried and you have to ac actually ask somebody, can, uh, I need directions to where Nick Beef is buried. So I don't know what, right. what Nick Beef has to do with anything, but I, I always thought that that was interesting. I could do a deep dive on that for us. I heard that when they exhumed him, there was nothing in the casket. That's what I heard too. Yeah. And, and Marina holds the key, but she's not squawking, mm -hmm. Marina Oswald. And the daughters, you know, may know something, but she's she knows how the game is played. And, you know, she was, I believe, conjecture. Um, she's, she's not going to say a word. Absolutely. We have so. two uh, uh, fan-submitted questions, if you wouldn't mind uh, sure. answering them. Sure, I'll okay. stay, sure. All right, thank you. Uh, Jake, do you want to read these? For me sure mr mazzoli you are one of the men that through your teachings and research led me to give my life to christ back in 2013 so thank you 
My question to you is, do you still hold the belief of the early church rapture, meaning God's people will be taken away before the Great Tribulation? Thank you, Mr. Marzulli. May you always be blessed and protected. And, and protected. And protected. Thank you. Um, and I realize it's a hot-button issue. Uh, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, there's a saying I, I coined a few years ago. We go up, they come down. We go up, they show up, talking about the UFO phenomenon. We're not appointed to wrath. We're not. We're not appointed to wrath. Um, you know, there's just, I believe that the early church fathers believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, and unfortunately, uh, segments of the church believe that we're going to go through it. And, you know, believe what you want to believe. But um, I think we're taken out of here because... Jesus warns us, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. We are the bride of Christ. So Jesus is going to give me a, give himself a bloody bride? I'm not buying that. And this is the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God Almighty. El Shaddai. It's like, you know, you don't, there's no way you're going to hold up against that. There's no way. Absolutely. All right, well, and then this is the next one, the last one. Uh, good morning, all. I remember overhearing that a direct energy weapon was the suspect to reason for some horrible California fires only a couple of years ago, and that L.A. had property and possessions and a studio all damaged by that. Will you ask him to tell the story? Thank you so much, and have a blessed day. Love and shalom to you all. Robert Johnson. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> there was a UFO that my neighbor photographed hovering right over our house the day of the fire. Wow. It's, it's small, because she's a mile away. And it, it's like, it's kind of like this in the photograph. It's about like that. Hmm. Plain as day, right there. It's got windows in it, hovering, hovering right over the house. We lost everything, absolutely everything. Man. Completely burned out. Um, we pulled up. The cars were just reduced to nothing. Everything, we lost everything. It was, everything was ashes. And we rebuilt, I'm in my new studio here. And um, all was good. We have a basically what I would consider a fireproof house. Gigacrete, G-I-G-A, Gigacrete is the uh, manufacturer of it. I mean, I designed it, I drew it up. It's mm -hmm. a custom home, but this is a, if you're at all interested, just Google Giga, G-I-G-A, gigacrete.com. It'll blow your mind. And, um, yeah, so uh, I've known about the energy, direct energy weapons. Is it a possibility? Sure it is, especially when looking at what we see in, in might be something happening in Maui. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, one of the hottest fires. There was a fire chief that went on the record. It, it, the fire that happened to us was called the Woosley Fire. And he stated, I've been, a, I've been a fire chief for like 30 years, 35 years. I've never seen a fire like this. So, um, folks, all I can tell you is there's the powers that be do not have our best interest at heart. Okay. And I find it amazing when, as a U.S. citizen, I'm in fear of my own government. Yep. I'll just leave it at that. So thank you so much, Mr. Marzulli, for coming on the show and for all the work that you do. And uh, Thanks, next God. time you come to Dallas, I hope to shake your hand and, and give you that tour. So Count on it. Count all right. on it. Thank you. It was great talking with you.
Great. Bye, guys. If you would like to submit a story, topic, or have any other inquiries, please email submit at skibanewsnation.com. Also, you can email Jeremiah Skiba personally at jeremiah at skibanewsnation.com. Also, email Jake personally at jake at skibanewsnation.com. If you want to write us a letter, send us something, help support us, or just say hi, please send your letter to Jeremiah Skiba, P.O. Box 560-271, The Colony, Texas, 75056. If you write us a letter, I'll do my best to write you back. Hey, Skiba News Nation family, thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and click that notification bell so you never miss an episode of Skiba News Nation. If you want to help support us, please consider becoming a Patreon where you will get exclusive content, shoutouts, and much more. And you can also support our channel by getting yourself some new Skiba News Nation merch. Thank you for coming on this journey with us as we continue to stay on the quest for truth. Huge shout out to all our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. If you want to help support us, go to patreon.com forward slash Skiba News Nation. Also, you can listen to Skiba News Nation podcast on your favorite podcast platform.